Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast, where we are going to have the pleasure of a conversation with Cole Imperi. Cole Imperi is a dual certified thanatologist and one of America's leading experts on death, dying, and grief. As a writer and podcast host, she's enthusiastically changing the way we approach loss, death, and dying in the United States, and she teaches how to live a brighter life by finding the light of loss. Cole, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be a guest. So the first thing that we need to figure out is what is a thanatologist? Yes, that is quite a $10 word, is it not? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So thanatology is the study of death and dying. And the field itself is, on the one hand, kind of small, right? Most people have never heard of it. However, on the other, it's actually a huge, huge area of study because death intersects with basically every aspect of life, um, and therefore, that is what thanatology looks at, anything that intersects with death, dying, grief, loss, and bereavement. I can only assume that your work takes you into places where you interact with hospice and other fields where uh, people also deal with uh, end-of-life issues. I have the good fortune of being able to experience multiple aspects of the field. Um, So for many years, I've been an active hospice volunteer. I have led um, support groups. I have served my community as what's called a death companion. Um, so I've actually been with people as they died. Um, and that's the sort of one-on-one actually being with death and dying. Um, on the other hand, I've worked with funeral homes, cemeteries, and crematories for over a decade in the United States. And then I hang out on sort of the research end, you know? Um, so I get to explore uh, death and dying in real life, and then from sort of an academic perspective as well. So the complexity of death and dying, but we're going to talk about all kinds of aspects of it, including the degree to which it's a touchy subject, and that's part of your work is is moving it from being touchy in a in a in a less constructive way to it being sensitive in a meaningful and powerful way, and that mm-hmm. begs that begs the issue of religion, and you have mm-hmm. a very compelling. Uh, arc to your own religious development. And so I was wondering if you could uh, introduce us to yourself um, as a religious person and then specifically link that to maybe how religion relates to your own understandings of or relationship with death. Okay, so in my own personal experience with faith, uh, I am what you might call religiously promiscuous. My mom and my mom's family is Catholic. I was raised Catholic, and I went to Catholic school through eighth grade. And then in eighth grade, I really was upset and tripped up by this idea that Jesus was Jewish and he died Jewish. And I didn't understand then why are we Catholic, and I was never able to get any answers on that. And so at 12 or 13, I decided I wanted to go to public high school um, because I 
felt even at that age that, that, that there, there was a misalignment in values or what I felt was right. So I went to a public high school and as luck would have it, that high school, more than 10% of the uh, population was Jewish. Um, so as a result, it was a public high school, but we were closed for all of the uh, major Jewish holidays because so much of our school would not show up for classes on those days. Um, and for whatever reason, I sort of became one of the Jewish kids. Um, and I, almost immediately, I started observing Shabbat. Um, whether it was with my friends, and then I also started to observe it at home in my bedroom on Friday nights. Um, and to this day, it's very rare if a Friday goes by that I do not observe Shabbat. So anyway, moving forward in college, um, I was still having conflicting stuff with religion. So I ended up picking up a degree in Judaic studies. Um, I learned to read and write biblical Hebrew. Um, I, and when I was 26, I actually went over to Israel. I had like a symbolic bat mitzvah over there and got my Hebrew name. Um, and then, oh, I forgot to mention, I also served on the board of a synagogue for, I think, three years in my 20s. But after all of this, I found out that I come from uh, what turned out to be a long line of Jews, um, in particular Alsatian Jews from the northeast um, sort of part of France. And so what I've been able to figure out, this, this all started with a DNA test, just uncovering my great-grandparents and beyond, um, the reason that everybody came over to uh, the U.S. was to escape persecution, and uh, they also left their faith tradition as well. So for me, my religiousness, it's been really interesting to have been dedicated and devoted and to have within me my own identity as a Jewish person, but to not find out that I actually was Jewish to some degree until after I had already committed to it. Um, so that's been a really special experience um, and something I really treasure and value about my own life's path. For most people, I think there is a stereotype about many religions and their relationships with death. And mm -hmm. certainly Judaism, Catholicism uh, evoke probably preconceived notions about those religions' relationships with, with death. What about yours, and and how did it change together with your uh, adoption and then discovery of your own Judaism? Most sort of faith traditions sort of explain death, and I'm going to boil this down really simply, to like a punishment and reward system. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. Um, at least we understand this as far as like with Christianity. So in my case, I was raised Catholic, which is part of the Christian tradition, Jewish, you know, all this. And so I understood this idea of heaven. Um, but as I moved into adulthood and started looking at things from more of a anatomological perspective, um, I mean, we can sort of unpack that dichotomy in a ton of different ways um, because we have replicated it in other areas of society. For example, Santa Claus. Santa rewards you with toys if you're good, and he punishes you with coal if you're bad, right? And so this is sort of the framework that death has been taught. Um, but the reality is, is death doesn't, that's, that's not accurate for death at all. Um, and in my work as a thanatologist, this 
dichotomy, this way of presenting death as a punishment or reward, um, really can cause a lot of issues for people at end of life because they're left with, oh my gosh, am I going to get punished or rewarded? Um, so uh, forgive me for interrupting, but you're, you're, yeah. you're saying that even if you're not necessarily a devout Catholic uh, or Christian, that, that this, this cultural baggage, even when mm -hmm. it comes filtered down indirectly through things like Santa Claus or other parallel, uh, certainly it's stereotypical. In other words, Catholicism is associated in the popular imagination with uh, with those those dichotomies as you laid them out. And and do I hear you saying that if you if you're around it a lot and if it's part of your culture being raised uh, in at home, even if you're not pious or a dedicated mm -hmm. religious person, you carry that w with you to your deathbed, and it's a source of stress and worry. It can be for sure. Um, there are, I mean, some of the students that I teach, um, I teach sociology, I teach thanatology classes. I have students that were raised completely a-religiously without any faith tradition, yet they still have these ideas of heaven is a reward and hell is a punishment based upon how you behave on earth. And they are, this, this is a concept that they have internalized that is not from a religious background, yet it comes ultimately from the religious traditions. Um, and at end of life, I have seen people who perhaps they um, were a practicing Jew for 50 years, but they were born to a Christian family and that was part of their early formative years. You know, it's interesting, these things that we were exposed to before the age of six, you know, they still live inside of us and they can erupt um, at end of life and they can be things that are questions for people and that they have a hard time grappling with. Is there anything about Judaism that alleviated this for you? Well, what I loved about the Judaic perspective um, from from my vantage point within the faith tradition, right? So I'm obviously not Orthodox. Um, I would identify more as Reconstructionist is this idea that um, it's not in hell, it's not reward punishment. It's, it's not so cut and dry. I mean, I have a book that is almost 500 pages just called Jewish Views of the Afterlife by Simcha Paul mm -hmm. Raphael. You know, Judaism is not really amazingly that clear on what happens at end of life um, or after we die. And I think that that's actually really healthy. I think it's a real problem if you tell somebody if you do these things while you're living, then you're going to hell and that's the end of the story. Um, it's much more healthy to have this idea that we don't know, that none of us really know. Certainly Judaism is, has, has spent the bulk of its long history in a pretty ambiguous place with respect to some of those things that are detailed much more explicitly in places like Dante. So I can mm -hmm. see why that plays itself out emotionally. Yeah, Judaism itself um, also values and and I guess I mean I would say rewards questioning. We encourage questioning, right? I mean, how many of our holidays is there like questions that we're supposed to ask and ponder? Um, and this is a quality that I think is very special to the Judaic tradition that 
it, it, it doesn't exist in other faith traditions in quite that way, in my experience. Um, and I think um, if we process this through a sociological lens or even a psychological lens, it is a much more safe experience and environment for an individual person. You know, would you rather be in a room with people who everyone is open to questions or would you rather be in a room where questioning is not okay, is not allowed? In your very, very personal experience of both Catholicism and Judaism, do you in fact find that um, a, a notable difference in the openness to questions? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I am not speaking on behalf of all Catholics, obviously, but you know, or when all I was Jews, yes, of course. or all Jews, right? This is my personal experience. But you know, when I was an eighth grader, you know, that's pretty young. I remember asking everybody about this conflict that I saw, like, why were we Catholic if, Jew, if Jesus died Jewish? That I, I got in trouble for asking that. And I um, have met other people who have had similar experiences, they may not have necessarily been Catholic, but from other faith traditions. Um, and I don't really have, you know, an explanation or any more information about why that sort of is there. But I mean, religions themselves have cultural norms within them. Um, and in Judaism, it is normal to question and that uh, I think most Jewish people would not respond by shutting someone's questioning down, right? Um, and that sort of is a, the cultural sort of social aspect there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, but it's always good to, to question that because it can sometimes appear self-congratulatory when Jews talk about how we're open to questions. Yeah, you're, you're so right, because ultimately everybody has some sort of unconscious bias somewhere towards something. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I want to shift gears a little bit because one of the most interesting things that I think you bring to the conversation is an appreciation of the sociology of death and the, the way in which um, religious uh, mixing in American families, which is increasingly common uh, mm -hmm. across the spectrum, uh, complicates, I'm sure it enriches, but it also complicates mm -hmm. how we approach death and certainly you and your work must encounter it with some frequency. Yes. So, uh, I'll say that this sort of, we'll just call it a challenge. Um, so, and the challenge being that today it is more normal to take a family unit and that family unit, let's say that they're in Cincinnati, Ohio, maybe they, that whole entire family relocated for job prospects 10 years ago. So it's more normal for people to live away from the place where they were born and or the place where like generations of their family members have lived. On top of that, it is more of a norm 
for within a family unit, you have multiple religious traditions that are represented and being practiced and to have differences in even languages, like primary languages that are spoken, countries of origin, all of that. So when we get all the way to death and one family unit is grieving the loss of a loved one, this is where the thanatological, like sociological lens comes into play. Because what helps one tradition or culture or even region of the country feel better about grief may not make another feel better about grief and loss. And so you can have one family unit where some of the people are comforted by certain rituals and others are offended by the same rituals. Um, And this is something that in funeral service, we sort of encounter, you know, funeral directors are the ones that are um, given the honor of having to create a like meaningful service and conclusion for a family. And it can be a real struggle to find a way to sort of take care of everybody's grieving hearts. Do you have a story you can tell us, an anecdote, something that would capture the attention? Um, I can tell you there was a, a funeral director I believe it was like a very mixed family. There were multiple religious traditions. Um, some people were from, not all from the United States. Um, English was not everybody's first language. So there were even some family members that couldn't communicate with each other, you know, directly. Um, and so the funeral director was like, what can I do that is meaningful to everybody? Well, the individual that died, um, she was known for her baked beans that she would prepare. And so what that funeral home did was when everybody showed up to the service, they actually had a bunch of baked beans brewing in crock pots, and then they put fans on them. So when everybody walked into the room, it smelled like baked beans. (laughs) And for this family, that was incredibly meaningful. And it was non-offensive to anybody because everybody associated their loved one with her baked beans. Um, So that is an example of how you can find something that is personally meaningful across religious traditions, across backgrounds, across languages. Um, And that's something that I've noticed in my research over the years in thanatology. There's sort of two things that are very safe um, in terms of things that are likely to not be offensive to anybody across any category. And that's food and plants, food and plants. Those tend to be two things that people don't have hangups with, bad experiences, trauma, um, those things. So food and plants. Yeah. Which leads us to if thanatology were not recondite and niche enough, you are mm-hmm. also a thanabotanist. Yes. That <laughs> beans are plants and food. So you can tell us mm-hmm. a bit about thanabotany. So thanabotany is um, an emerging field that I'm pioneering, and I just completed a research fellowship in that area earlier this year at the, uh, out of the Lloyd Librarian Museum. So thanabotany is where thanatology, the study of death and dying, intersects with ethnobotany, which is the study of how people use plants. So thanabotanists look at how did we use plants to deal with death, dying, and what comes afterwards, the grieving process. And then we look at it across time, across 
cultures, across countries, across religious traditions. So one of the outcomes from this uh, fellowship was a Santa Botanical database where you can now go in and pick a plant, a flower, a specimen, something. Let's say that we pick the pine tree. Then that will pull up information that will quickly tell you, oh, the pine was used for death and or dying and or grief and bereavement. And then it will show you what countries, what religious traditions we have documentation for this usage in. So for example, rosemary is something that would show the user that rosemary was used for dying the the you know before you actually die the, the process of dying we also have documentation that it's used for death and that it is used for post-death and what else will pull up is italy will show up and then wales we have a lot of rosemary usage out of wales over the last four or five hundred years so that's one of the things that we do in Thanabotany. And then when I, one of the applications of Thanabotany is with the example I just gave you with the baked beans, basically. How can we take these plants that we know about their past usage and help connect them to grieving families to help them create meaningful rituals? Because we know that when a person is able to identify something that is meaningful to them, which usually comes in the form of a ritual, they have higher day-to-day levels of happiness and well-being and are less likely to experience complicated grief. Complicated is a nice way of saying bad, right? Bad bad (laughs) or distorted or just um, a type of grief that is truly debilitating your life. You know, there is no such thing as like ideal grief. But the idea is that when you are grieving, which is totally normal, and you can grieve the death of a person, or you can grieve things like a divorce or a friendship ending, you should still be able to function and not lose control of your life. But when grief becomes complicated, some of the outcomes of, of that are people start to lose relationships and stop paying their bills um, and having just a hard time, you know, functioning. Um, and so I'm interested in, well, what's the medicine there, so to speak, that we can use to help prevent that from happening? Is there any, uh, botanically speaking, is there any um, plant that you've come across that is surprising, either because it's universal use or because of a curious use that you never imagined? Um, I will say that perhaps one of the most interesting um, is the yew, the Y-E-W tree. Um, So yew trees were planted in the United States in a lot of churchyards. So churchyards is the term that we use for a cemetery that is like on the same property with um, a church. And the yew tree was originally started to be planted because of its association with the Greek underworld idea, and that the yew tree will actually help take souls from above ground down to the underworld. Um, But then the yew trees started to be planted because people believed that they would help prevent disease um, and help with keeping things inside the cemetery, inside the cemetery. But we also found usage of some groups of people would actually take the leaves from the yew and then use those as sort of a preservative for the body to help temper the natural process of decay. Um, And 
what I next is one of the things that I researched was like, well, well, you know, is there any science behind that? And the yew tree, there's components that we actually harvest from that tree that are anti-cancer and they're used in um, anti-cancer drugs. So it's kind of interesting. I've noticed on your website that you work with tarot cards and you make, uh, you've even written an article uh, on, on how to use tarot cards in a way that is a psychological window into people and their lives as opposed to in any way kind of divining uh, magically things that some people use tarot cards for. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what what insights or what's the mechanism of the tarot cards that opens up uh, access to people's thinking or psychological state. Yeah. So tarot cards, um, most people in the U.S. know them as these things that people use to, like, see the future. Um, but they're just pieces of paper and there's nothing magical about them. And all of that is just sort of uh, influenced by the movies. So I have had tarot cards since I was a kid, like nine or 10 years old. And they were presented to me as just like ways to know yourself. So now fast forward to my work as a thanatologist. So death and dying are really uncomfortable for a lot of people to talk about. Really, really uncomfortable. And there are people who I've interacted with over the years who really want to talk about something, um, even just to share an experience. This is totally in a non-clinical sort of scenario, but they have no, they've never done that before. So the tarot cards early on became a doorway that I could use to help people get there. So the thing about a deck of tarot cards is there are 78 cards in a tarot deck and each card represents a theme that is common to any normal adult life. So for example, there's a card called the chariot and it is a person driving a chariot and there are two horses that are usually like pulling it. So that card asks, who is driving in your life? Are you driving or is that PhD program driving or are your kids driving or is your guilt over something actually in the driver's seat? And so when we can take a deep question like that and get people to chew on it, that allows people to move through blocks and issues and challenges, and it really ultimately helps people become more present. So there are three things that as in my work in um, thanatology, I look at rumination is living in the past. Um, presence is being in the here and now, and then worry is existing in the future. Most of us, pivot between ruminating and then worrying and then ruminating and then worrying and in engaging in social media is something that I classify as rumination because all of the posts that you see in any social media forum are from the past. They're not from the present. So something like a tarot card helps people be in the here and now and from the realm of grief counseling, in order to move through a trauma or a loss or whatever you're grieving, you can't do that while you're ruminating and you really can't do that while you're worrying. You have to be in a present state. So I figured out kind of an unexpected way to utilize tarot cards and to, to sort of teach this um, in a way to help get people more familiar and comfortable with being present. Um, and I take it real seriously because actually in June I traveled had an appointment to see the oldest surviving tarot cards that we have in the United States. Um, and I was able to see that they were like 500 years old. 
Um, so these guys have been around for a long time. And the other thing I love about the tarot cards is we have hundreds and hundreds of years of usage in history. And I think that there is, there's value in old things. We'll say that. Fair enough. On a Jewish <laughs> podcast that resonates. So the, uh, the last thing I want to ask you has to do with regrets because, uh, if you spend a lot of time with people in their last moments in life, you must encounter powerful, powerful experiences of people grappling with regret, maybe even panic. I don't know. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. So I'll say that for um, the people who are facing end of life that are, you know, coherent and sort of, you know, they're mentally, um, the thing that was surprising to me in the earlier part of my career was discovering that people do not regret what they did do. They regret what they did not do. People die with the regrets of businesses they never started, children they never had, relationships they never pursued, countries they never visited. Those are the regrets that people have most often at end of life. I personally do not have any memory of working with anybody who at end of life was like, I regret starting the business or I regret having the kids. It's always that they did not do those things. Um, and so that's something I always try to talk about in my public education work, my public health work, um, because it takes a lot of presence in your own day-to-day -day life to know what you actually want to do. And a lot of us go weeks and months and months turn into years where we know there's the thing that we want to do, but we're not letting ourselves do it for some reason. Um, and you have to be careful because at end of life, that might, might be the thing that you regret that you have no opportunity to pursue. And you just have to face that. Um, and that can be really painful to watch somebody grapple with that. That's a surprising answer because I would, uh, um, if I were to have guessed, I would have guessed that the deepest, most poignant and uh, enduring regrets have to do with things that one did do badly or wrongly or harmfully. Do you think it's not the case? Do you think we, the regrets are mostly about things undone because um, there is a vehicle in most cultures for confession as you approach mm -hmm. death and that the confession covers the, uh, the, the sins of commission, but there's nothing really in place to cover the sins, for lack of a better word, of omission? Yeah. So, you know, it's, that's such an insightful question because, you know, I have encountered people who, by their own admission, say that they, they, they did bad things. Um, and even in my work with my colleagues in the field, you know, at end of life, most people are like, you know what, I wasn't the most generous or I could have been more generous or I, I could have been better in these ways. Um, but that never seems to be the things that cause sort of suffering. Um, and the people who, so individuals who are facing end of life who work with well, what we might call a death companion or a death doula, that's one of the things that individual will ask you or they'll, they'll ask their client. They'll say, what are the things that you regret doing? Um, and so if they say something like, I regret that I've been estranged from my sister for five years, 
the doula will usually help encourage the person to reach out or go through a ritual to sort of make amends. Um, because even at the end of life, you have opportunities to um, change the course of some things or to put um, a foot in the right direction. And with when we throw religion in the mix, this is kind of interesting. Um, there was a study that was done that found that the more religious people were, the more afraid of death they're likely to be. The more religious, more afraid. Um, which is interesting. Sounds like religion because, isn't doing its job very well. <laughs> so, well, and I think it, it depends on your relationship with, with religion, right? It depends on that individual relationship. If you view your religious tradition as the thing that's going to punish you at end of life, then I can understand why somebody may be really upset confronting that. But if you view your religious tradition as something that is there to provide support and to help you work through and face problems and conundrums, then that's more of like a peer relationship. Um, so that's something that I've always thought was really interesting that the study clearly shows that. But then when you break it down to an individual basis, no matter what religious tradition you might be from, ultimately you either have a friendship with that religious tradition or you may have more of like an antagonistic or some sort of conflict that is within there. So, yeah. So let's leave on a let's leave on a happy note. What is the single most uh, uplifting message um, that you feel people need to know about death? Research shows that when you spend a little bit of time thinking about it, that your that the levels of death anxiety go down, that you have less of it. So if death or dying is something that makes you uncomfortable, you're scared of it. I want to tell you and reassure you that spending a little bit more time with it actually won't hurt you and actually will help you become more present. And that's going to reduce the anxiety that you have around it. Thank you. And thank you for spending the time with us and sharing your uh, amazing wisdom. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And if anybody's interested in learning more about my work, um, I've got some resources on my website. You can find me at americansanatologist.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes. 